This is The Guardian. Boris Johnson hopes a mini reshuffle will convince Tory backbenchers that he's changing things as protesters use the Prime Minister's false claims when ambushing Keir Starmer. I'm Jessica Elgott, the Chief Political Correspondent at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. The Prime Minister is still refusing to apologise for falsely linking the Leader of the Opposition to a failure to prosecute Jimmy Savile. And the pressure is on Johnson from his own MPs to correct the record after Starmer was harassed by a mob in Westminster, hurling Savile comments at him and calling him a traitor. I made it clear last week that while the Prime Minister's words were not disorderly, they were inappropriate. As I said then, these sorts of comments only inflame opinions and generate disregard for the House. And Johnson was probably hoping that a mini reshuffle amongst some of those closest to him would reinvigorate a sceptical backbench. But the decision to move the embattled former Chief Whip to the role of leader of the House of Commons has been met with some criticism and his new Director of Communications has begun with some eyebrow-raising antics. So what other tricks does the Prime Minister have up his sleeve? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. Whether it's baseless accusations in the House of Commons or threatening chance of a braying mob or the lack of an apology from a supposed leader, words matter. To get her take on things, I spoke to Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee. I've been in Westminster during this chat, so you might hear a bit of background noise. Polly, it's lovely to have you on. And um, let's start with those pretty distressing scenes we, we saw on Monday of Keir Starmer and David Lammy being harassed by protesters in Westminster. And you know, most notably, they were shouting things like paedophile protector and Jimmy Savile at Starmer. One witness there told me that they saw someone carrying a noose, made a lot of quite threatening comments. And although there have been about, I think by my count, 11 Tory MPs who have condemned them, the Prime Minister said, you know, he doesn't, he's condemned the, the violence, but there hasn't apologise and Danis has made it pretty clear he's not going to to apologise. What do you make of that? Do you, what do you make of the um I guess impasse there is on, on this issue and how and how badly it could continue to play with some Tory MPs? It was a shocking thing to throw in the Jimmy Savile smear and uh it, it has real world effects. It's very dangerous. Two MPs have been killed. It's a very bad look not to apologise for aligning himself pretty much with QAnon type uh, lunatic conspiracy theories. Boris Johnson puts himself on the very much on the wrong side, morally, politically. I think it's been very awkward for his people to have to defend it. He sent out people to defend it, sounding each one sounding worse than the next. I don't think an apology would do him much harm. I think it would do him good. Sadiq Khan was on the radio this morning saying that he knows from personal experience with his family, but also he knows it's the same for Keir Starmer's family, for David Lammy's family, whether they ask them, is this threat to your life potentially worth what you're trying to achieve? And that you know makes things extremely difficult for politicians to reconcile themselves with, doesn't it? It's a real fundamental threat to democracy if people are frightened of becoming MPs. I mean, there are a number of MPs, women MPs particularly, uh, who've got panic buttons at home because they've had such bad threats. I mean, that's, you know, th this is a fairly new phenomenon and a very frightening one. 
And it's utterly shocking that you can have a prime minister who deliberately stirs it up because they discussed it in Downing Street, it's reported before, whether or not to throw in Jimmy Savile to throw fuel on the fire. And they said no. And then he did it. And that's what led to the resignation of Munira Mirza. And, you know, that's pretty disgraceful. And, uh, you know, I think that the public gets it and they certainly get the sound of no, we're not apologising. What do you think are the chances of any kind of U-turn? I, I mean, we've seen Johnson in the centre of scandals like this before. Perhaps, you know, the Nazanin Gazagari Ratcliffe, you know, his description of Muslim women as letterboxes, where it's felt like there was an incredible pressure on him to to apologise wholly rather than claiming there'd been kind of misinterpretations. And, and he never really has. He's psychologically incapable of it, which would make it all the more impressive if he did. If he went out there and said, you know, I, I got this wrong, I'm sorry, it, it's not true, it's a mistake. But, you know, full fact and others have listed the mistakes, have sent to Downing Street the mistakes, the lies that he's told in Parliament on things like crime levels, employment levels. You had Tim Harford of more or less highly authoritative on statistics. Lie after lie after lie, and they refused to correct it. Uh, and I do think it's time that Parliament itself took a grip on this and said, all right, we have rules about not calling people liars. But on the other hand, when people do lie, they must there must be a mechanism to force them back in to apologise. And is that on the speaker, do you think, Polly? He's not really been prepared to take those kind of steps, although he is very strict when people are called liars in the chamber. I think the speaker could call together uh, a proposal for how it should be dealt with and a new set of rules. And it would be quite difficult, I think, for the Tories not to join in. I think a lot of them would with new regulations on this. Uh, Of course, you know, the Speaker could take the initiative on it at any rate. And generally, the atmosphere in Westminster seems seems pretty tense. We had those those Tory MPs criticising Johnson over, you know, what happened to, to Keir Starmer and generally over the Savile comments. It hasn't prompted a new flurry of letters in the way that some of the comments did initially uh, or prompt very strong criticism of Johnson um, from people like Andrew Mitchell. Do you think that the groups of people who have not yet sent their letter in are now sort of pretty fixed on waiting to see what happens with, with the Met Police investigation into parties? It's a pretty bad look. They look pusillanimous. They sit there, rows of them, listening to this going on, saying nothing. And you wonder what their constituencies, the constituents feel about it. They're going back for... 10 days, maybe they'll get an earful. You know, why aren't you doing something about this? It looks pretty disgraceful. It seems uh, a very technical calculation is going on that if Boris Johnson can get 180 of his MPs to stand by him, then he'll know he'll be safe if there is a confidence vote. He's done things like dangling the fact that there'll be a reshuffle in the summer after May elections to try and persuade some of those red wallets who haven't been promoted yet that they have a chance of promotion. I don't know if they're that bribable. If they're sensible, the only bribery that would work would be things for their constituents, not personal promotions themselves. What do you make of this idea that Johnson has, has told people in Number 10 that he he just isn't prepared to resign, even if the, even if the Met find that he's broken the law? which is really an extraordinary thing for a prime minister to to attempt to do, you know, once they've been found not only to commit a criminal offence, but, you know, to have broken laws that they personally implemented and told people to obey at great cost to themselves. Do you think he's able to make that decisions? Will MPs then eventually take it out of his hands? 
Well, he's a rule breaker by nature. He enjoys rule breaking. I can see that they will have to prize his fingers off uh, the cabinet table to get him out. He said it'll take panzer divisions to get him out. I'm sure he'll just say, but this is no, if he gets fined by the police, he'll say this is no more than a parking fine. You don't lose your job because you get a parking fine. And he will bat on. So it will be up to MPs at that point as to whether they tolerate that kind of behaviour or not. Uh, utterly disgraceful, and you ratchet down in standards of decent standards in politics. But I don't think that would worry him. If he can get that 180 firmly on his side, then he'll stay forever. And there are there are two really central issues, I suppose, Polly, aren't there, that are coming up for Boris Johnson if he does manage to survive. One, we're in the midst of one already, the cost of living crisis. But but there is this, you know, there was an attempt this week to address the the terrible NHS backlog, which is which is um, people waiting for surgery in the NHS rose from four million before the pandemic to six million people. Waiting lists are not expected to fall till twenty twenty four. You know, if you talk to people in number 10, I think they'll say that they think that this is actually the big issue that could define the next election, even though it's not as much as everyone's lips at the moment as as, as parties or, or, or energy bills. Have they done enough to, to tackle it in the plan they've, they've, they've set out? Tell us a little bit about it. There really isn't a solution because this is due to over a decade of failing to train uh, and work for, uh, uh, create a workforce that can do the work necessary. Uh, Jeremy Hunt has been saying, you've got to have a workforce strategy. Uh, They haven't got one. And they are not creating enough new training places to make sure, anyway, it takes 10 years to train a doctor, four years to train a nurse. This is a long-term strategy. You can do quite a lot by importing people, uh, nurses and doctors from elsewhere, but there's a shortage. Uh, It looks as if waiting lists will peak exactly when the next election is due to arrive in that's one of the reasons why you know Rishi Sunak in particular and 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 Boris Johnson has been convinced to to not drop this this next rise uh, the the national insurance rise that's coming in in April that's going to come as part of a perfect storm of you know of, of rising inflation of people's energy bills uh, going up amongst all these other, you know the other pressures that we know about including the extra ones on the most vulnerable it feels like a moment for labor to capitalise on it and and how much do you think Labour has to devote its attention to parties and the PM's character and you know moral compass and also you know talk about the these issues at what point do the public you know tire of Labour going on about parties and say you know actually what we want to talk about is our is our energy bills I think they have to do both I mean you've got Angela Rayner who's sent out there to be the heavy hitter on all matters political uh, party gate uh, things of that sort, and she's very good at it. And you've got Wes Treating, who is now a really heavy hitter on health. And day after day, he really punches that bruise by calling it the Tory backlog, which is very effective because it is a Tory backlog. There was virtually no backlog in 2010, and now it's going to be rising to 13, 14 million. So, I mean, that's just a gift to Labour. Uh, and you've got a front bench now that is very good at uh, at really hitting on these these points. The other story, Polly, that I wanted to touch on um, before you go is is the story we're doing this morning on um, on the cost of net zero group of, of Tory MPs who are putting the government under a lot of pressure on their net zero policies on green issues. I mean, it's it, lots of them familiar names from the Brexit years: Steve Baker, Craig McTinkinley, also like very prominent campaigners like like Rob Halfon, all of whom say you know they're not climate sceptics. 
but they are very worried about the cost of these policies on ordinary people, particularly during the times when budgets are under pressure. You know, it strikes me as the moment when they could be most influential is in the choice of the next Tory leader and thus, you know, really potentially set the direction in a worrying way about who they choose, most obviously, probably Rishi Sunak. What do you, what do you make of that kind of influence and, and is it growing? As we know, the time is very short. This may be one of the few things in which Boris Johnson actually was convinced that something had to be done. But he seems to have given that up. We haven't heard any more about it since uh, COP26. And I think that's now off his agenda. The only thing on his agenda is himself. And if the those Tory people manage to get a real grip on the party saying, let's do away with what Cameron once called the green crap, uh, let's have no levies, let's ha- take no action that could possibly be difficult for anyone. Uh, it's a disaster. Uh, it, it, it's a complete calamity. And nationally, you know, a humiliation when the world is trying to cope with this. Polly Toynbee, thanks ever so much for joining me. A pleasure. After the break, can a changing of the guard save Johnson's skin? We'll be right back. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott, Chief Political Correspondent at The Guardian. Staff at Downing Street are dropping like flies as five of Boris Johnson's closest allies quit last week. And this week, we met some of their replacements. And Johnson decided it was time for a bit of a shake-up in the ministerial ranks. So Jacob Rees-Mogg has gone from being the leader of the Commons to the newly created Minister for Brexit Opportunities. And he's been replaced by the former Chief Whip Mark Spencer, who is under investigation for claims that he told former Minister Nusrat Ghani that her Muslimness had contributed to her sacking. He denies this. So will these changes steady the ship? I spoke to Giles Kenningham, the former head of press at 10 Downing Street under David Cameron, and Tim Durrant, Associate Director at the Institute for Government. Giles, I'll start with you and sort of paint a picture for us about, you know, what it's like when you're in number 10, you're facing a crisis like that. And, you know, I'm sort of particularly thinking of the end of last week where there's a big resignation of Manira Mirza. And then, you know, whether this was planned or not to go the way it did, it didn't feel completely planned in the way it played out. Um, the resignation of, of three other really key members of staff. You know, what, what goes through your head, you know, in those kinds of moments? I think the concern is that this is a domino effect. This is coordinated. This is choreographed. And what happens next? So the concern would have been, right, it's happening with advisors. So they're working in cohort with some of the MPs, with the backbenches, where does this end up? And the pressure will be absolutely relentless because, you know, now you've got you know, not just your good selves, the papers, you've got the broadcasters, you've got the bloggers, you've got the Twitter sphere. Everything's moving at breakneck speed and at, um, at 100 miles an hour. And I'm sure there would have been an element of just absolute despair. They had their big sort of signature flagship white paper out on levelling up last week and they just cannot. They seem unable to get back on the front foot at any time and wrestle back the domestic agenda. And there's a huge opportunity cost playing out here. I think one of the reasons why it was so problematic and damaging, Boris's key audience at the moment is MPs. And to MPs, this sends a signal out that he hasn't got a grip, you know, the ship is sinking. And if your own staff don't have confidence in you, then why should we have confidence in you? So incredibly problematic. To, to take a step back and look a little bit at Johnson's offer to MPs, this creation of the office of a prime minister, a new kind of cabinet secretary position, a bit of a kind of moving around of the 
deck chairs in Downing Street. Sp- spell out for our listeners what that might mean in practice. I know that we, we're still slightly unclear about it. I think, I mean, I think that's a really important point to start. We are, we are quite unclear about what it will actually look like. So when the PM stood up in the Commons and responded to the Sue Gray report, he said, you know, there's going to be this new office of the Prime Minister. And everyone's immediate question was, how is that going to be different from the Prime Minister's office? So it might be that he takes a lot of the kind of powers and organising heft from the Cabinet office into this beefed up number 10 arrangement. And then that raises questions about, well, how does the Cabinet Office, what does the Cabinet Office, the kind of remnant of the Cabinet Office do? But also, how does this number 10 direct government, will it have more power to direct government? Because Prime Ministers tend to complain that actually, you know, while they're sort of the face of government, they're the most well-known member of the government, they're actually quite underpowered in terms of the resources that they have to get things happening. So if he brings in more civil servants, more people to work for him, will that allow him to to direct more of what is happening in government rather than relying on his ministers, his cabinet to, to take things forward? Giles, when you were working in, in Number 10, how did you find that the structure worked? What were your frustrations about Obviously, the Prime Minister sort of doesn't really have a department, as it were. He doesn't have that big heft of civil servants working on policy for him. But in a way, it's a sort of a different job, isn't it? It is. I mean, ultimately, as Prime Minister, you're paid to make judgment calls every day. And Whitehall and the machine only works if you're constantly making those decisions and getting the machine to move at breakneck speed. Otherwise, the bureaucracy takes over. Generally, uh, I found the number 10 machine very good. You get the Rolls Royce of the civil service. The one thing which sometimes I found quite frustrating was there was sometimes an element of like, well, we've always done it like this. It's like, well, that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do going forward. There was an element of accepting the status quo. I think that is where um, Don Cummings is right, is that there is too much of that in Whitehall. You do need to challenge those perceptions, especially given the levels of disruption we are going through in the business sphere and the sociological sphere as well, um, but generally very positive. Tim, when th- there's always this perpetual complaint from MPs that they're not listened to enough, that, you know, that they don't have as much you know, heft in policy making as they feel they deserve, and often promises from prime ministers to change that, to have kind of policy sounding boards. That's part of Johnson's offer to MPs to try and s- stave off this vote of no confidence. What's worked and what hasn't worked in the past and what, what might work for Johnson? It's difficult at this stage because so much of the um the so much of the challenge that Johnson has faced recently has been around kind of his personality his way of running things and actually we I think we're starting to see that that's it's moving beyond that now and it is on policy so there are lots of policy issues that MPs don't think the government has got a grip on or isn't do- taking forward in the way that they would like but they haven't been able to get the government to listen to what they want on that because everyone has been so focused on the structures of number 10, the personality of the prime minister and those around him. And so the big challenge is, is going to be what role Steve Barclay plays with um, with MPs as his new chief of staff, how he kind of brings their view- voices into number 10, into the prime minister's decision making, because that is the role of a, of a good chief of staff, you know, being that link between the heart of government and the party. Obviously, Steve Barclay is a minister and an MP. We've never had a chief of staff like that before. So doing that role, he's got some advantages, hopefully, in kind of taking the temperature of of the party. But he's going to be a very busy man. I'm not sure how he'll manage all of the different roles that he's now got. Do you think it's possible, be honest, for him to continue as a minister, an MP, you know, keep his role in the cabinet office (laughs) and be the prime minister's chief of staff? 
No, not not to do the full role that he had as as Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. No, I mean the the role of a Chief of Staff. That's more than a twenty four hour a day job, right? You know, you are on call. Everyone wants to talk to you. You you should be in every meeting that the Prime Minister is in. You should be seeing all the pieces of paper that the Prime Minister is seeing. You need to be understanding what it is the Prime Minister thinks, what his priorities are, so that you can get out there in the rest of government and make those things happen for the PM. So that requires you to be in number 10 all the time and understanding where the PM's at. You can't do that and be the head of a a department with really important issues to be dealing with. And if Steve Barkley is chief of staff, he cannot do do all the other stuff that his previous job was about. The other big role that there's been a change, the change in, or oh, there's, there's been a few, but but one of the others is 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 the director of communications, the return of Guto Harry, who was with Johnson when he was mayor of London. They seem to be uh, reconciled, shall we put it? And and uh, Harry seems to be um, certainly keen to take a bit more of a combative role uh, on on some of these stories, put himself out there more. Jack Doyle, his predecessor, was a, you know, you know quite low-key in that role. What do you make of him, Giles, from, from the comms perspective? Do you, do you see it as, as, as a, a kind of change of, of tone from, from this administration? You know, I like him. I think he doesn't take himself too seriously, um, uh, which you know, often you get in politics. But clearly, he won't want to become a story. I think you'll see him now take more of a lower profile because if you do become a story, then you spend your whole time, you know, having to deal deal with stuff and you lose perspective. And as someone once famously said, when the spokesman needs a spokesman, it's time to go. So I suspect he will dial it down. He doesn't need to be a lightning rod for Boris. But what he does need to do is obviously someone needs to grip the machine and bring some rigour there. The thing which they'll be really grappling with is what you find with government departments is if they think the PM is on the way out, Whitehall just grinds to a standstill. And that's an issue for them because they need to show there is a radical domestic agenda that it's business as normal. So Harry will really need to sort of push the machine and get that moving to be grinding out policies because that has been an issue for the Johnson administration. Now, clearly, they've dealt with this unprecedented situation of COVID, but domestic policy has been quite light so far. We've had levelling up. They need to be churning out more stuff. Tim, what do you make of I think one of the things that you sort of reading between the lines of the Sue Gray report or the Sue Gray update, as, as far as she was able to, to, to draw conclusions, it seems like she was unhappy with what she observed in Downing Street to be not a, a, a place where you could challenge authority, not a place where people could kind of speak their minds. You know, does it make a difference to have civil servants and political advisers who can, you know, challenge the prime minister and help set direction? At the Institute of Government, we talk to former ministers all the time and they always say, you know, what I really wanted was my officials to come to me and say, well, there was a problem as soon as it arose, rather than, you know, wait for it to kind of emerge down the line, because you can tackle it much quicker if you know about it earlier. So creating that space where people do feel comfortable and open to kind of raise problems, but also one of the things that came through from the Sugo report you know, what she seemed to be talking about was the kind of the management of number 10 and the the culture of the organisation. And again, if people don't feel able to say, well, I wasn't comfortable about this, or I didn't think this was being done well, you're not going to get the best out of them. And the organisation is going to, you know, it's not going to be as effective as it could be, it's going to be, it's going to become warped and, 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 and damaged because people don't feel able to be themselves or feel able to challenge poor behaviour or whatever it might be. I think it's really important that this reset that the Prime Minister's, you know, still trying to to finish looks at the, the culture of the place as well as the personalities. Charles, what do you make as well of this slightly strange shuffle of Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was leader of the House of Commons and is now the Minister for Brexit opportunities and government efficiency 
kind of maybe taking on a, a few of other people's roles who people have got big jobs like Steve Barkley, um, Chris Heaton Arantz's old job. But it does sound a bit like a made up job, doesn't it? Yeah, on the surface, people might conclude it sounds like a bit of a non-job um, uh, and a sop to Reese Mogg. He's obviously been one of Boris's most loyal, ardent supporters through thick and thin, but it certainly feels like he's been moved sideways. Yeah, it, it's one of these things whereby it'll define the job. Like you say, he may be able to take on some of the stuff which Steve Barclay is doing, so actually may be able to carve um, a niche out for himself. I remember David Cameron famously saying, when we got into government, we thought about changing some of you know departments. And he said, the problem with doing this sometimes in Whitehall is that Whitehall spends six months arguing over where the pot plant goes um, when you create a new department. So, I mean, not to be glib about it, but, you know, is Reese Mogg getting a new department? Is he going to be in the cabinet office? What's happening? Um, so, yeah, it, it, it could work, um, especially with the Barclay position in terms of taking some of the workload off him. But he will be very mindful himself that he doesn't leave him looking like a figure of ridicule. So he'll, he'll want to be um, getting on the front foot and actually espousing some of the benefits of Brexit, which you know they haven't done a lot of. So clearly there is there is a market there if they can, um, you know, if they can make a compelling case. I mean, Tim, you know, to take the whole thing at face value, especially if he's the, the Minister for Government Efficiency, that that's quite a techie job. I mean, he, he will have to get to grips with them. Maybe he's completely perfectly capable of this, of of lots of very thorny issues within the civil service. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's going to be, I think, quite a, a nitty gritty job. He's going to have to get down in the weeds. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that's his kind of inclination. Um, on on Jazz's point about the Brexit opportunities, you know, they put out a paper last week or the week before saying here are all the great things about Brexit. But as Jazz said, they're they're all fairly vague. So actually showing, well, this is what we've done differently as a result from having left the EU. That's also quite a big job. Uh, if if Rees Mogg. I think it gives him quite a good platform, actually. He can use this in, for whatever he wants it to use it for. He can use it to to say, you know, look, this is the great thing about the Johnson government and the way we've done Brexit, and we can uh, we can we can show why it's better this way. Or he can perhaps, yeah, become a bit of a sort of a, a bit of a joke, a kind of a punchline of a, of a non job. So it's you know, I think it is an opportunity for him if he uses it well. One of the other places where we've seen some some changes is is the the Whips office and Mark Spencer moving on to uh, leader of the Commons, a choice that is a bit controversial given he's he's, he's under this this cabinet office investigation for comments he allegedly made uh, about Ms. Ghani and her her being Muslim. But there's a new chief whip, Chris Heaton Harris. Um, how have you observed the Whips operation to have run for Boris Johnson, Giles, and and, and could it have been better? I mean, obviously, I'm not privy to being inside there, but my outside observation is clearly I've had this 80-seat majority and it feels like they've burnt through political capital at breakneck speed and have managed to alienate a lot of MPs very quickly. Having said that, they are dealing, I think, with the 2019 intake who are different to a lot of previous MPs. Many of them haven't fought seats before. Different dynamic there. But I think, you know, ultimately, you can judge it on what's happened and you say it hasn't been that successful and clearly there's got to be a lot more engagement boris has got to do all the basic things like you know be going in the tea rooms seeing an M- any mp who's got an individual gripe and this is where you need know, the likes of backbench mps come into their own and you have already seen a lot of mps feel emboldened to speak out to speak out against the regime they're going to want to try and stop that and get back onto uh, a level playing field we all know the worst thing the public hate are divided parties Tory party that's very fractious and looks like a series of different coalitions at the moment, which doesn't play well with the electorate. 
My thanks to Giles Kenningham and Tim Durrant for chatting to me. And that's all from us this week. Next week will actually be the last week that this podcast is presented by Heather Rowena and me, and it'll be switching hands from the week after and coming out on Thursdays instead of Wednesdays. So do keep an ear out for that. And in Politics Weekly Extra on Friday, Jonathan Frieden speaks to Andrew Tobias in Cleveland about why Donald Trump is having an effect on Ohio state politics without even really getting involved. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Polly Toynbee, Giles Kenningham and Tim Durrant. The producer is Amelia Janssen and the executive producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Jessica Elgott and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian.